you know, if you build models where five or six degrees is a uh, really likely or possible outcome, or even three or four degrees, those are very, very unpleasant worlds. So it's not just tail risks. The centre of these distributions from unmanaged climate change are also uh, very, very worrying. And I think you could use the word catastrophic. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a new podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. And today we're really very fortunate to have with us Nick Stern, the IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government and chairman of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and Environment at the London School of Economics. He was previously chief economist and senior vice president at the World Bank and is probably best known as director of the Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change, which was published in 2006. Welcome, Nick. Thank you very much, uh, Robin. It's a pleasure to be here at the Kennedy School. Great. Great to see you. Now, before we talk about your current thinking on climate change economics and climate change policy, what I'd love to do is to go back. And and when I say go back, I do mean go way back. So tell us where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in West London, uh, a bit of West London called Brentford, having been born about three miles further to the centre in a place called Hammersmith. So I essentially grew up in uh, West London. And where did you go to both what we would call here at least primary school and high school? Uh, I went to local primary school Mm -hmm. and then high school uh, was in Hammersmith. Uh, Then we had what was known as direct grant schools or grammar schools, Mm -hmm. which were selective at an exam at 11. Uh, Fortunately, most of the UK doesn't do that anymore. But it was basically local schools. And then college? I did a mathematics degree at Cambridge, Mm -hmm. and that's three years, the usual UK degree length. And then I switched to economics and studied economics in Cambridge for another year. And I had the immense good fortune that when I switched to economics, my supervisor was James Murleys, Jim Mm -hmm. Jim Murleys, uh, a great, great public uh, economist, mathematical economist, development economist, who subsequently won the uh, Nobel Prize. And from there, then, then that led to a PhD? Yes, I did the doctorate at Oxford, actually, because mm-hmm. Jim Murleys, uh, who was teaching me in uh, my first year economics, very quickly got a chair. I think he was 31 at uh, Oxford. So he said, you want to come along? I said, absolutely, I do. And uh, off we went to Oxford and I stayed there for 10 years, first finishing my PhD and then uh, as a teacher. And then when you left Oxford, where was next in your career? I went slightly to the north, to the University of Warwick. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was in 1978. And that was a young up-and-coming university. Uh, And it up and came pretty quickly, actually. It's one of the best universities in the UK uh, now. And I had eight happy years there and then moved to the London School of Economics in 1986. And I've been attached to the London School of Economics since 1986, although I deviated for about a dozen years, first as chief economist of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which was about Mm -hmm. investing in the Central Europe and the former Soviet Union after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then uh, at the World Bank. And then I had uh, three years at Her Majesty's Treasury Mm -hmm. with uh, Gordon Brown 
as Chancellor of the Exchequer or Finance Minister and Tony Blair uh, as Prime Minister and that's where the Stern Review was written. Now, before we get to the Stern Review and your time in government, um, when you were at the World Bank, which is, I think, when I first met you, um, I would have thought of you at the time as a development economist. But clearly, most people now, if they have not known your whole history, would probably characterize you either as economist or environmental economist or climate change economist. So did that evolution, to whatever degree that characterization is fair, did that evolution take place as a result of what became known as the Stern Review? Or did it take place and that led to the Stern Review? Uh, it was somewhere between the two. Okay. Um, I am still a development economist. Uh, that's what attracted me into economics. I wanted to understand how people's lives change, how development advances, how for some people it doesn't or goes backwards. Uh, what is it that shapes the way in which individuals, communities, societies advance or decline from the economics point of view, particularly around standard of living? And that has uh, been with me all my life. That's why I changed actually from mathematics to mm -hmm. economics. So that is indeed what I did, the economics of public policy, economics of development, economics of growth. Uh, from the beginning of my academic career, which is in the late 1960s, to um, around uh, the early 2000s, uh, and I joined the Treasury in 2003. So that was quite a long period where development economics was what I did and public policy was what I did, because I edited the Journal of Public Economics for many years mm -hmm. with Tony Atkinson. But then when I joined the Treasury, um, I had to think about British public policy, I had to um, think about Africa because I was asked to write the report to the Commission for Africa under Tony Blair. Um, but I became more and more interested in environment and climate issues. And when the uh, G8 summit of 2005, which was about um, development, particularly Africa and climate, met, it made quite good progress on Africa committing to supportive policies on trade, committing to doubling aid for Africa in five years or so. But that G8 summit of 2005 didn't get very far at all on climate. And I sat down afterwards with Gordon Brown, and um, who was then the finance minister or chancellor of the Exchequer, wondering or thinking through why we did well on one of the two subjects, Africa, and didn't do so well on the other. And we concluded, actually, the world's leaders really didn't understand what climate was about. Some of their aides had asked why Tony Blair was introducing a marginal subject. These were presidents and prime ministers. Why would they be talking about climate? And that was 2005. So we took the view that, actually, uh, it's only when these things move to center stage in economics and finance that the whole of government and indeed partially true the population at large, really takes notice and uh, engages with the issue. So we said, well, why don't we have a look at the economics of climate change and see how it can become or should become a uh, finance minister, prime ministerial issue. Um, it seems strange to ask that question now when it's so dominant, but that's where we were in 2005. So Gordon Brown said, well, you know, you've just done a, a review of Africa for the Commission for Africa. 
of development in Africa, so why don't we have a review of the economics of climate change? And I knew a bit about climate change. I wasn't a specialist before we began, um, but I went to the best scientists mm -hmm. in the world and you know, educated myself quickly from them. I did know something, of course, like any informed social scientist should about climate, but it hadn't been a speciality. And once you start thinking about this, you can't stop. Uh, and I haven't stopped since then. So the, the suggestion for the report actually came from Gord Gordon Brown to you in discussions between the two of you? Is that yes, how it, it came from our joint dissection, the two mm -hmm. of us, of the G8 summit. Uh -huh. It was G8 then because Russia was still in right. the G8 summit of 2005, where we'd had two subjects. One had gone well with a strong engagement, Africa, across the G8. Another, the only people engaged at that summit was Jacques Chirac of France mm -hmm. and uh, Tony Blair of the UK. The others' eyes just glazed over. It's clear they hadn't thought about it, didn't particularly want to think about it. So my recollection is that Tony Blair uh, very much took ownership for the report, I mean, in a positive way, when it came out. Um, is that a fair description from this side of the Atlantic, that's the way it appeared, that this was really, Tony Blair was very happy with this and he was putting it forward to the world. Yes, he did. Um, but Gordon Brown did too. Uh -huh. And these were very particular times in the UK where there was great jostling for position between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. And mm -hmm. there had been a pact between them that uh, after two elections, uh, Tony Blair would hand over as Prime Minister to Gordon Brown. Uh -huh. And uh, that pact had not yet been delivered on. And mm -hmm. Gordon Brown was not happy mm -hmm. about that. So there was some tension between the two, some competition between the two. And they're two very talented politicians, mm -hmm. very smart, thoughtful people, very committed to uh, doing good in the world in a rather generalized sense of doing good. Um, but they were competitive. Um, so it was quite a uh, funny circumstance. So the two main sponsors of this report, uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, were also in competition for prominence. Mm -hmm. But I think it's fair to say that Tony Blair uh, had been very committed on climate. Gordon, who's rather academic in many ways, wanted to think it through. Mm -hmm. So we did the report, mm -hmm. and uh, Gordon really did. Uh, come on board. So I think it's fair to say the two of them championed it. But um, Tony Blair had a, it's also fair to say that Tony Blair, at that point as Prime Minister, and a longer term commitment on climate then, uh, had the higher profile. And what was your staff like for doing the report? Was it your existing staff that you already had? Or did people get seconded from other ministries to come and work on it for a while? What was the story there? We recruited about a dozen people mm -hmm. from across government, uh, from the Treasury itself, from the Department for International Development, uh, the Overseas Development Assistance bit of the UK government, uh, those particularly. Um, but uh, we also had uh, you know, a Department for Energy, um, which was within the um, what was then uh, a Ministry of Business and Economics outside the Treasury. So we called people in from different parts across government. On the whole, they were very good. Mm -hmm. And we made a couple of hires. We hired a climate scientist to 
someone who'd just finished their PhD on climate science to keep us in good contact with climate scientists, which was uh, fundamental. So basically that dozen or so people must have been nine or ten internally and two or three outside hires. One or two secondments of people who got interested, who turned out to be uh, very good and very helpful. One from the uh, Bank of England, uh, one from Oxford who had worked at the World Bank, older older people who knew a lot about the subject and uh, saw this as an opportunity, wanted to pitch in. They were very good too. So my recollection is that you came to Harvard, I remember the room we were in, and made a presentation to a small group of faculty about the report. I think before it was completed, there was someone with you, perhaps Alex? Mm. Alex Bowen. Exactly. Alex was the one who was seconded from the Bank of England. And he had spent the last few years as Secretary of the Monetary Policy Mm -hmm. Committee. Mm-hmm. which in some ways is a, a, a very important, some ways very interesting, in some ways perhaps rather tedious job where you're totally focused on the current movements of prices and output and demand so that the Monetary Policy Committee can make up their mind whether to raise interest rates, lower interest rates or keep them the same. So the normal thing was you deliberate and you deliberate and pour over the numbers and you keep interest rates the same. So it's not always very exciting, although it sometimes is too exciting. Um, Alex had uh, wanted to get involved in something else in public policy. He was a very important part of the group. So we're going to get to the present, but I still want to stay on this on the Stern review for one more moment here. If, as you look back on it now, because it's become, you know, iconic, really, um, within the history of both scholarship on climate change economics and also scholarship and contributions by public intellectuals to the discussions around climate change policy. So as you look back on it now, what do you think was best about it? And also, if there's something you could do differently now with that report, what would you do? I think it had its distinctive characteristics which gave it an advantage in uh, calling on public attention. One was that we came at it as a group of people, and particularly myself in, in in relation to this remark, who had spent their lives in public policy, uh, in economics, in economic growth, economic development, uh, tax expenditure issues. Um, with an interest in an area, but not a focus in an area. So I came at it as someone who had lived their life in policy mm-hmm. and then started to grapple with something that I was aware of but hadn't been deep into. So I think there was that sense of uh, impartiality which comes from not having been deep into the subject before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could, you know, it has its disadvantages because I had to learn very quickly. But I think coming at it with an open mind, and I did come at it with an open mind, and so did the rest of the team, mainly. They had not been deep in that area before, except for one or two of them who we hired as specialists. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, was one part of the story. The second is it came from the Ministry of Finance. It Mm -hmm. came from the Treasury, our economics finance ministry. So this was not a, quotes bunch of tree huggers trying to pull everybody in their direction. This was a group of uh, mostly 
economists looking at this from the point of view of economics and thinking about public policy from the point of view of a Ministry of Finance. And I think those particular parts of the story, the idea that we weren't party pre at the beginning and that we were sitting there in a Ministry of uh, Finance, our UK Treasury, I think those two things were distinctive. So it gave us, as it were, a chance. Mm -hmm. Then I think the public profile came from the commitment of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to um, the argument. You know, they looked and they listened and they said, yes, we have to take this uh, out there. So I think those were ingredients in its public profile. Mm -hmm. And of course, the quality of the report was down to us and we had to had to work. Um, and I haven't found actually any mistakes. It's 700 pages. I do. I have found the odd typo. Is there but, anything uh, though you would do differently in terms of, you know, the the process you went through to put it together, the way you launched it, et cetera? Or there probably are some things I would have done uh, differently. Um, the uh, the economics which we brought at that stage was largely the economics of growth, the economics of development, and the uh, economics of public policy uh, in the context of risk. Mm -hmm. And I think I would have been more radical if I did it again, but I learned that along the way. Right. Radical in the sense of recognizing this uh, even more strongly as uh, being about, uh, for many people in the world, something existential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To recognize even more strongly that unmanaged climate change destroys lives mm -hmm. or likely destroys lives on a massive scale. So I think if I did it again, but this is what you learn on the job, of course, I'd have made the whole story of risk still bigger. Mm -hmm. It obviously was center stage. But I'd have made the whole story of risk much, much bigger. So, so that's interesting um, that you highlight the risk because, as you certainly know and will recall, that at least in the economics community, some of the findings that came out of the Stern Review were controversial. And um, my late colleague and your friend, Marty Weitzman, um, was in a sense critical, all in another sense full of praise, because he said you came to the right conclusions for the wrong reasons. Do you remember that observation of his? And if, if so, can you elaborate on yes. it? Yes, um, with great sadness, because we lost Marty very recently, and uh, he was a dear friend from 1972. We met at MIT mm -hmm. um, as young academics, and uh, he came to University of Warwick to visit us. Marty was a complete one-off, uh, one of the most original people I've met. Um, so, you know, we talk about Marty with, with great sadness, but also with great admiration and the points he makes and made um, were always, always important. And I should say that Marty and I got closer and closer on these issues as mm -hmm. time went by. And essentially, Marty said that uh, it's the risk of catastrophe that's at the heart of this story. Yes. And uh, he's right, was right, is right. Um, but it's not the only thing at the heart 
of the uh, of the story, and uh, Marty argued that we got to our conclusions largely because of our treatment of discounting, mm-hmm. and he felt that the center stage should have been risk. My reaction was that risk was at center stage, and I agree with you, Marty, that mm-hmm. it could have been even bigger, and perhaps should have been bigger. So we we didn't disagree on that. We probably did disagree on discounting, although that went away as time went by. And here's the issue. Um, In economics, uh, discounting is about the relative valuation of something that occurs in the future uh, relative to something that occurs now. That something is usually treated as a good. So if you take some output um, and you say, how much is an extra unit of output in the future, call it in 50 years' time, worth relative to unit of output now and that's a relative valuation economics is in large measure not only but in large mm-hmm. measure about relative valuations and that's the discount factor mm. that's the fundamental concept the discount rate is the proportional rate of fall of the mm. discount factor but the, the fundamental concept is the discount factor which is the relative valuation so as soon as you express it that way that's why economics is helpful actually mm-hmm. if you express a concept reasonably clearly then you can see what would shape any measurement or judgment about that concept. So relative valuation of a good appearing in the future versus the valuation now. That will surely depend, as soon as you've said that sentence, on circumstances in the future. Um, If you think the future will be spectacularly rich, then there's a case for making a valuation of an extra unit then rather low. That's a value judgment, of course, but that's a value judgment many people would come to, I think, quite Mm -hmm. quickly and agree upon. But, of course, the counterpart of that is if the future could be very poor or devastated uh, relative to now, then you'd put a high valuation. Mm -hmm. And that says immediately that you cannot import your discounting from outside the analysis or outside the model because this is a question uh, for policy as to what we do about climate change and that in turn determines whether there's a big risk of being very poor or not as a result of the devastation of unmanaged climate change. So the discounting story and the risk story are intimately linked and the mistake that economists were making and I'm afraid some of them still make is to think that you can import the discounting uh, uh, judgments, be they expressed as discount factors or discount rates, from outside, that they are something in our language exogenous Mm -hmm. to our analysis. When I think once you've defined what discounting means, it's completely obvious that they couldn't be. They couldn't be exogenous because we are taking decisions within these models about whether the world is runs a risk of being... uh, very poor. And I think if you express it that way, you can see why Marty and I uh, became much closer on this as time went by, because uh, Marty was emphasizing the risks, quite rightly so. I was too, Marty even more. He was right on that. Uh, And uh, he, I think, came to see very clearly that this had to influence your approach to discounting. So we we came together. Yes. Well, Marty certainly became more and more um, aggressive in his own thinking uh, 
about the imperative of action on climate change, particularly focused, of course, as you said, in terms of the risk of small probability but catastrophic outcomes, which did drive a lot of his thinking. I also think that Marty came to see that this wasn't just tail risks. Mm -hmm. This wasn't sort of low probabilities Mm -hmm. of catastrophic events. It was quite high probabilities of catastrophic events. You know, if you build models where five or six degrees is a uh, really likely or possible outcome, or even three or four degrees, those are very, very unpleasant worlds. So it's not just tail risks. The centre of these distributions from unmanaged climate change are also uh, very, very worrying. And I think you could use the word catastrophic. So, so from that, I'd like to turn to the policy world, because you've remained... Um, and perhaps even increasingly over time, engaged in the policy world with regards to climate change. Um, So would you characterize your thinking in terms of the progress around the world, where the world stands? And I'm thinking we could be thinking both in terms of international climate negotiations under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or in terms of the domestic action in various countries. Um, Would you characterize your thinking as being optimistic or pessimistic? Where are you in terms of the progress that's been made up to this point in time? I'm extremely optimistic now about what we can do. Because since the Stern Review, as we've been discussing, the science has looked more and more worrying. Every Mm -hmm. intergovernmental panel on climate change report that comes out has more worry from the science than the last. So uh, that extra risk or enhanced view of risk has just gone on and on. Um, That's much more worrying. But the change in technology in the last dozen years, uh, 13 years since the Stern Review, has been quite remarkable. I mean, remember, that was one year before the iPhone. Mm -hmm. Look at what we can do now in terms of managing energy systems, transport systems, cities, processes which are at the heart of the story, Mm -hmm. and indeed forests and land. Mm -hmm. Uh, So much better as a result of that technology. Who would have thought now that offshore wind in the UK is competing out fossil fuels Mm -hmm. in power uh, generation? Who would have thought just a dozen years ago that all the major car companies are talking about the end of the era of the internal combustion engine? And quite right too, and the electric cars are going to be much more efficient uh, and better as well as uh, zero carbon if the electricity comes the right way. So the technical progress has been quite remarkable and it's come on the back of only modestly good policy. So I get quite optimistic when you think about the technological change that has occurred on the back of quite ordinary policy when we could have much better policy and have still faster technical progress. So those two things cut the opposite way. The the, the science looks much more worrying, but technical progress has moved faster than we anticipated, much faster than anticipated then. And important lessons for economists there, how do we foster rapid technical change, which our subject should be much better at. The political will, it depends where you look. Uh, I've been working in India now for um, more than 45 years and China for more than 30 years. Those are the two most important countries in the world. Uh, China's the biggest uh, emitter. Probably 15 years from now, India will be the biggest emitter. They've both changed in their view on this story. They recognize how much climate change matters to them. 
and uh, they recognize that they are big players. They can't just say other people who were more responsible in the past should do this and we don't have to. That's gone. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they, uh, the understanding that others have in large measure been responsible for creating Mm -hmm. This problem it has not gone altogether, but they do recognize their role in this and they actually see the advantages of the new technologies. So India and China moving in uh, positive uh, directions. Europe, after being a, an early leader mm -hmm. and then slowed down a bit as they were struggling with the financial crisis and so on, um, is starting to pick up. Um, United States, well, it all depends where you look. If you look at the White House, then uh, it's hard to argue that there's been unambiguous positive progress in understanding climate, although it was strong under the Obama administration. It's not strong under the Trump administration on climate. I think that's uh, not a controversial statement. But, of course, where you look in the United States, you have cities and states and firms which are uh, very strong as well. So science, much more worrying technology very promising political will it depends where you look but i am enormously optimistic about what we can do but so deep deeply worried about what we will do because we are absolutely not moving fast enough so speaking about not moving fast enough we're coming to the end of our time but there's there's one question i want to uh end with um because you've had a tremendous amount of experience as as is clear uh, in the economics of climate change and in climate change policy. And something new has arisen that to people of our age is quite striking perhaps, and that's the youth movement. I mean, there is this striking youth movement uh, in Europe and in the United States um, regarding climate change. What's your reaction to what they've been saying and what they're asking for? I think the last three, four years with the youth of the world has been enormously encouraging, actually inspiring. And, you know, I appear on platforms now with 16-year-olds and they're absolutely on top of the science. They know what it's all about. Uh, why? Because the current generation, people up to 2025, have learned climate at school. It's not mm -hmm. some mysterious thing. It's actually very clear that when molecules oscillate at the same rate as the infrared which is bouncing off the world off the surface of the earth they interfere and stop it escaping for them it's pretty straightforward and they're on top of the numbers as well so i've been very impressed by the young and they are quite rightly putting pressure on us the next two decades will be absolutely decisive uh, the world economy will roughly double and we have to cut emissions by 40 percent at least just for mm -hmm two degrees. The next two decades are critical and the young see that. Uh, they see it clearly and so what I th think the next steps now are to sit down with the young and we're doing that I'm sure you're doing that mm -hmm. too um, and work out what we have to do. Mm -hmm. And there the idea that uh, there is a very attractive way forward, that we have the growth story of the 21st century in our hands. We can build cities where we can move and breathe. Mm. We can have ecosystems which are robust and fruitful. And we can do that whilst we increase our standards of living. But to do that, we have to change quickly, and we have to change strongly, and we have to manage that change. There it seems to me, the young people will be with us on driving that change. They will insist that we do 
And that, I think, is uh, the most optimistic of the features, big stories of the world that we've seen in the last three or four years. Well, that's a wonderful place to conclude. So let me say thank you. Thank you very much, Nick, for taking time to join us today. Our guest today has been Nick Stern, the I.G. Patel Professor of Economics and Government and the chairman of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and Environment at the London School of Economics. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.